Blog Talk Radio. Hi and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Today we are joined by our guest host, filmmaker Heather Lenz, best known for directing and producing the Sundance documentary, Kusama Infinity. Our special guest today is Joe Costell, a producer, screenwriter, and playwright whose work has explored Latino and LBGTQIA history and identity for over 20 years. He directed and produced the documentary Nellie Queen, The Life and Times of Jose Saria, which was supported with a grant from From the Heart Productions. The film opened the Long Beach Q Film Festival in 2019 and won the Audience Award for Best Feature Film. He also directed and produced Recorder, a documentary about his family's migration from Mexico. In addition, he co-wrote and produced the play The Boulevard, and he was awarded a development grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting for Hero Street, a screenplay about the true story of eight Mexican-American war heroes. Thank you so much, Claire, for the introduction, and thank you so much, Joe, for being here with us today. Um, today, we're going to discuss your documentary, Nellie Queen, The Life and Times of Jose Saria. And for anyone who doesn't already know, could you please tell us a little bit about who Jose was and which gender pronouns we should use when we refer um, to Jose? Oh, thank you, Heather. It's an honor to be here, really. Um, and Jose was the first openly gay man to run for public office in 1961, and he ran in heels. Uh, he was a female impersonator who ran 11 years prior to Harvey Milk's first one run for office, I think, believe, in 1971. He also started one of the first and largest LGBTQ nonprofits in the country called the Imperial Courts. And they have more than 70 chapters in North America. And Jose was um, truly gender fluid. So it didn't matter to him whether you referred to him as he or she. He was just he used them both interchangeably. He, he wasn't a transgender, but um, he did, like, carry a little purse with him. He wore earrings. He was always fashion forward, even back in the 50s and 60s. He would combine his dress. And he didn't feel insulted if you said she or he. He didn't take it as an insult. And so it just doesn't matter. You know, I'll, I'll go back and forth. And, and his friends would go back and forth, you know, claiming she, he. You know, he didn't necessarily have to be in drag to call him she. You know, we just... It was interchangeable. That's all I, that's all I can say. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's politically correct, but that's what they did. 
Well, that's very helpful. And of course, this was before they became um, so popular recently. And while we're on the topic of defining which words to use, I would also like to know if you prefer to describe um, Jose as Latino, Latinx, or Latin, because obviously this is a time when language is changing so rapidly and different people have different preferences. And I uh, definitely prefer not to try to make those decisions for other people. Right. Latinx is fine. You know, I'm sure he wouldn't even know what the term means now. But, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, he referred to him as Latino. You know, uh, he, he was born in uh, San Francisco. His mother was uh, Colombian. His father was Nicaraguan. So, um, yeah, Latin, he's fine. He would have been fine with that, too. All right. So when you decided to make this documentary, what was your experience with filmmaking up to that point, and how long did it take you to make the movie? Well, I tried to make the movie in the 90s, um, and I went to film school back in the 80s, but um, I really could not find anyone who was interested in helping me or funding me. And back then, you know, it's very expensive uh, to work in uh, uh, either uh, video or film. And actually, I was trained on film, you know, to to film cutting and what have you. So, um, but at that time, back in the 90s, when I first met Jose, I just didn't have the financial resources uh, and the technology was just not affordable. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. Actual um, film versus video is just incredibly expensive, getting the processing and, and all of that. Um, so, so when you decided to make the film, in spite of these obstacles, I mean, how did you get started? What were the first steps you took and the first things you filmed? And, and uh, did, did several years pass before you actually, you know, between the time you had the idea and the time you got started? Well, I always wanted to do something. You know, I read about Jose in, in grad school in 1990 in Iowa, from the University of Iowa, and I was doing a paper on gay culture. And, you know, it was a real eye-opener because I was from Iowa, so I didn't know a lot about gay culture, like Judy Garland was an icon. I just thought that was ridiculous, you know. Now I understand it, but back then I couldn't, you know, grasp it, you know, um, those kinds of um not stereotypes, but just things that people, you know, gay people are aware, you know, so the different icons. But um, so I read about Jose in this academic book with just like a couple pages, and it talked about his election and him standing on the tabletops of a cafe, a bohemian cafe, and screaming, gay is good, you know, divided, you know, uh, united together, you know, go, <laughs> what was his phrase? United we stand, divided that catches one by one. You know, he would say those kinds of things. I thought, my God, he was a Latino drag queen saying those things during the McCarthy era, and he could have been easily arrested, put in a mental institution, or even killed. So um, I just knew I wanted to write a play, a screenplay, a magazine article. I didn't make a but I didn't even know he was still alive. So when I did move to California, Los Angeles, I decided to look him up in a phone book. That's when we had a phone books back then, and he was listed. So I wrote to him, and he wrote back. And so I met him in October of 1990. I took up my partner at the time, and we were just floored by his personality, his bravado, and um, just 
sheer honesty of who he was. Um, he wasn't as big as he was back in the 50s or when he was running for election. He was basically working in a print shop, making copies, like a FedEx kind of place. Um, and he was 68 years old. Um, so that was his job. And then he would do cabarets on the weekends and his, his political theater, you know. So a couple years went by, and um, I <laughs> kind of conned um, this group of people. Uh, they were writers. I said, let's get a camera, and let's start using a camera. We would tell stories on camera. So we all chipped in our money, and we bought a camera. And so the high camera I used to um, basically just take his uh, cabarets and uh, his cemetery markets, and we did some sit-down informal uh, interviews. Um, but I couldn't, like I said, I couldn't get anyone really interested in helping me and uh, or the finances. But um, that didn't stop me from taping him over the years. I mean, you know, I would tape him for 23 years, you know, uh, that uh, I knew him until he died. Well, 23 years is a long time to commit to um, a, a project, so I commend you for that. And, um, you know, your passion for the subject certainly comes through. And I learned so many things watching the film. And um, on that note, one important piece of history covered in the film is a legal battle known as Schumann versus Riley. For anyone who doesn't know, could you please explain what that was and how Jose was involved and how it changed history? Yeah. So as I said, uh, Jose worked at a bohemian bar called the Black Cat Cafe. It wasn't, it wasn't in the Castro. It was in the North Beach area, which is like right, all these different interesting intersections of the financial district, uh, Chinatown, um, Little Italy. And then it was a very bohemian place for artists also. And um, at that time in San Francisco, as it was most of the country, uh, it was against city ordinances for gays and lesbians to congregate publicly, to to be in bars, um, and to carry on gay culture, what have you. And the military at the time, because San Francisco became a huge military um, base during World War II, so the 40s, during the 1940s, a lot of men, servicemen and women came into San Francisco, and the gay bars just flourished. And a lot of men after the war stayed, and women, uh, feeling they had more freedom there. But um, the military deemed the cafe as an out-of-bounds bar, which uh, meant military personnel could not go into the bar because homosexuals hung out there. So the military and the police were both cracking down on all these bars throughout the city. And finally, the ABC took away the cat's license in 1949. But the owner, Saul Stuman, who was a Jewish straight family man, took uh, his case all the way to the state Supreme Court to have the ruling uh, overturned. His attorney fought on the grounds that gays had a constitutional right to congregate in public. And it's, uh, it's considered a landmark decision because it's never been overturned, and that's why gays can congregate in public in California. And that's why we can have gay pride parades and gay cafes and bookstores and whatever, because restaurants, because of that law. It's never been overturned. Uh, and that was 1951 when he won his uh, bar license back. Although the police did try to overturn it, uh, the courts tried to overturn it, the ABC tried to overturn it, but they were never, because of Jose, they were protecting it. And um, 
you know, fighting for their civil rights that they, it was just never overturned. Yeah, it's it's a it's a pretty amazing story and and um, incredible to think that this is the reason that uh, things like you know gay pride parades and so forth are able to to happen. Um, and it's just incredible that this wasn't um, an obvious right to begin with that it had to be fought for. It's it's very um, you know heartbreaking. Um, so. Uh, and one thing I wanted to add that I found so interesting about the story is that the military put soldiers outside of these um, bars and um, to keep people out, but in fact it helped uh, people identify the locations, the people who wanted to, to, to go there. So I thought that was um, interesting. Yeah, and what Jose did in the sound of the documentary, but what he told me is that um, that they, he had a, a – but was I think he knew a manager of the hotel, a hotel, CD hotel across the street, and uh, they would rent a room, just one room, and the soldiers who came, you know who were in uniform would go across the street and change into civilian clothes, and then they would go across the street and they wouldn't have the uniforms on, you know, because you basically they didn't have their civilian clothes, they couldn't they, for some reason, and so they would just change, and so they could get in easier. They wouldn't be identified by their military uniforms. Oh, wow, so that, that's a that great story. <laughs> that's one way that they, uh, they circumvent. And he did many things like that to circumvent the laws. But, you know, eventually yeah. you just have to, you know, push up against it as opposed to just circumventing it. So in another uh, chapter of um, Jose's life, he um, has a relationship with Joshua Norton, and I'm wondering if you can uh, talk a little bit about that. What, what was the nature of that relationship? Well, uh, Joshua Norton was a real person who lived in the, uh, San Francisco and during the gold rush days. And um, he, he lived, uh, uh, he was a very wealthy man, and he was a philanthropist, and he gave generous, generously to the city of San Francisco. But uh, when he lost all his money in the stock market, um, he became mentally ill and proclaimed himself emperor of the United States and protector of Mexico. And, I mean, he even went as far as printing his own money, <laughs> having his – I don't know how – I don't know if he had no money. I don't know how he printed his own money, but he did. And that's what he would pay for his drinks or pay for his – you know, he would use that money – to pay for, and the people in San Francisco accepted his money because uh, he was such a good person to San Francisco. Like I said, he, he was a philanthropist and, you know, gave to a lot of worthy causes as San Francisco was starting to become a boom town because of the gold rush. Um, so, you know, it took care of this destitute emperor until his death. And Jose always had a penchant for the Victorian era. He thinks he lived there uh, during that time in a past life. And so, um, can you hear me? Uh oh, I could not yes, hear you. Yes, I can hear you fine. Yes. Mhm. Hello. But can unfortunately, yes, we yes, can hear yes, you yes, just I fine. Can you. you hear us? Yes. Yes. Sorry. Can you? Um, oh, good. Okay. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, so anyway, uh, when uh, 
decided Jose decided after the the Black Cat Bar closed, Jose decided to declare himself uh, the widow of the emperor. And of course, you know, Joshua had already been dead since the 1880s. Uh, but it was a character Jose created to identify with philanthropy and royalty. I mean, after all, he was already a queen, and he thought, well, why not make myself empress so he could be above <laughs> all the other drag queens uh, that were in the city. And there were quite a few even back then, back in the early 60s. And uh, could you talk about some of the events that are in the film, the scenes um, revolving around uh you know, this relationship with, with uh, Joshua. Um, well, so one of the things he would do, um, so he, he started the Imperial Courts in 1965. It was one, it's one of the first LGBTQ uh, nonprofits in the country. And it, I think right now it's the largest uh, nonprofit in the country with 70 chapters throughout uh, Canada, U.S., and Mexico. And every city has a chapter, a kingdom, and that kingdom elects an empress or an emperor for one year to raise money for any charity they choose. It's based on Emperor Norton and Jose as the empress, the widow Norton. And the charity doesn't have to be LGBTQ. Uh, Jose wanted the gay community to be part of the larger straight community, and he thought having an organization that mocked royalty in which they could perform lip sync to songs and collect money one dollar at a time, they could do it in tongue-in-cheek and have fun. And, and again, that was part of uh, Emperor Norton's identity. In fact, Jose went as far as buying Emperor Norton uh, his own tombstone because basically he was uh, put in potter's field, you know, because he had no money. And um, Jose, you know, bound the tombstone and paid for it, and Jose's actually buried next to him. So he, one of the things he did once a year was go to the cemetery um, after the coronation of the newly elected emperor and empress, and he would uh, rent buses, tour buses, and about a couple hundred people would go and march. I mean, he had Diane Feinstein. He would have the mayor there, a mayor's representative. You know, it was always political. He always tried to, you know, mix the fun with the political. And he would talk about if the city was having problems with the gay community, and he would let the officials know that, you know, they were having issues. Um, so, yeah, that's one of the things he did, you know, for fun. And that's when I first kind of started filming him doing those kinds of events and him telling stories about the past on the on the uh, tour buses um, and jokes. He was quite the comedian. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really clear watching the film that he was such a fun person to spend time with. And I wonder what your favorite um, thing is that you filmed – that ended up in the movie, and what was the most surprising thing that happened during the making of the movie? Uh, well, filming his cabarets were always a lot of fun um, because uh, he had such great comedic timing, and he always intertwined the – he did operas mostly, but um, the, whatever musical story he was doing, you know, whether it be, you know, Oklahoma or, you know um, – Cat Carousel, or those 150 uh, sh- uh, show tunes, um, he would turn it into a gay storyline. But back in the in the 50s, he did operas, and so he would always be, a, you know, he would be the heroine, and the the hero would be uh, some some victim from the the audience he'd bring up on stage, and uh, he would be the confused bisexual hero. 
so um, he would tell these stories, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, it was almost like, um, what would you call it, um, improvisation, you know, but uh, he to music. And uh, he wasn't a great singer, but he could hold notes. And he was like a court jester and in a way that he was able to, you know, poke fun at society, you know, in the hypocrisies of society, you know, of straight people, but also of, of the community themselves, of people hiding in the closet. And that was kind of the point of his um, shows is to bring people out of the closet and to stand up for who they were. Um, one of the things uh, I didn't actually take, well, he did, he did sing, a couple times, uh, what he would do um, when the vice squad came into the bars, tried to entrap men into, you know, um, uh, buying them a drink or, you know, setting up a date, any of those things, buying someone a drink, setting up a date, touching someone on the knee, all those things could lead to an arrest and they would be, and the charge would be prostitution. And that was devastating back then. And so men would, like, commit suicide. They would lose their jobs. They would lose their families. Um, so it was really difficult if they were entrapped in these bars by, you know, these <clears throat> vice officers pretending to be gay. So Jose figured out there was a way to um, find out who these men were. And when they came in, uh, the bar owner would flip the light switch off and on and off which uh, signaled to Jose that they were in the bar. And Jose would uh, confront them and say, um, excuse me, sir, but are you an undercover officer? By law, you have to tell us the truth. Otherwise, it's entrapment, and entrapment is against the law. And, of course, these guys would be embarrassed and humiliated, and they'd walk out, and Jose would get the audience to stand up and sing God Save Us, Nellie Queens, which was a takeoff on the national anthem of the British anthem, you know, God Save the Queen. Um, so at the end of his shows, he would sing this all the time, you know, whether the vice squad is there or not. Uh, he would sing, he would get the audience to stand up and sing. And even they would, he would lead them out on Sunday afternoons because he would do the Sunday uh, operas. He would lead them out to the street and the jail, was conveniently right across the street back then in North Beach. I think the Hilton Hotel stands on it now. But uh, all the men who had been arrested for in the parks and, and toilets and places cruising and stuff, there'd be like a hundred, a couple hundred men arrested on a weekend. And Jose would, and they'd still be in jail until Monday. And Jose said the police officer, the guy on, on watch, would let the men go to the windows and wave to Jose. And Jose would wave back and sing them God Save Us Nellie's Queens or other songs, you know, Saints Go Marching In to to <laughs> to lift their spirits, right? Because um, they were in jail. They were, you know, they were going to pay a fine. So he did this all in tongue-in-cheek, but it was just an amazing um, way to, to pull the community out of the closet. In fact, um, because of my film, a student uh, from Oxford, a PhD student, is um, doing his thesis on Jose. And one of the things he found out, and I didn't know, was that the first time the phrase gay community was used to describe Jose's election uh, when he ran for city supervisor in 1961, no one had ever used that phrase before, at least not in print or it's not been found 
So a newsletter did say the PA community, community needs to rally behind Jose in this election so we can, you know, fight for our rights from within. And so that's a, that's a major um, turning point because, it's, you know, that's eight years before Stonewall. And so Jose was already, you know, pushing the boundaries on what, what they could do legally. They could, they could congregate. They could run for office. And they had already, you know, there had already been um, protests. So, you know, they say Stonewall. One of the things I think the film proves is that there was a movement, a huge movement, before Stonewall. Stonewall was just a riot, <laughs> and it got very little press. Now, then they started to move, you know, the country did start to move forward after that, but they had a lot of shoulders to stand on. And Jose, they were they were already beating back laws and getting uh, – um, you know, ordinance overturned in the city, and California was the first uh, to uh, allow that. So um, that was uh, that was basically you know, that was his kind of whole show. The why he did these operas. He was an entertainer who turned political, and you know his uh, his behavior was political theater. Well, the film does an incredible job of preserving all these aspects of history, like, you know, just this incredibly unfair treatment towards this community. And as you said, there was police entrapment and so forth. So, um, you know, I really applaud you for that. It's just it's such a fascinating um, piece of history. And you mentioned your early struggles to fund the film and how you got some friends together and bought a camera and the film took so long to make. Ultimately, how did you find the financing to get to the finish line? Um, it wasn't easy because I, I was never kind of, I was kind of raised on the, um, uh, <laughs> the notion, false notion, I guess, to ask for money. Um, and that was really difficult for me. Um, but the imperial courts, I would say, probably raised about half of it through fundraisers. Wow. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. it was a, the film was about a hundred fifty thousand dollars. And what, but what was? It's hard to, um, you know, total the figures because I took a lot of time off from work, so I lost money, right? So right. I wasn't working. In barely paying myself, I was on employment and what have you. So, um, so basically, uh, the courts did raise about half of it. Uh, private don- uh, emperors and empresses they would they would donate money. The Jose Saria Foundation provided about ten thousand dollars. Of course, the, the Roy W. D. Dean Grant um, provided one, um, and then we did a GoFundMe fundraiser. But I think we only did one of those. It did raise about $7,000. Um, but primarily, uh, and then there were um, a few other grants that I, I received, um, but not, not many. You know, the grants were really hard to get because um, you got to have a track record, and I really didn't have a track record. So that was difficult. Um, but you, so I just went to the people who were interested in uh, Jose's story, um, who felt it was important, you know, and some that included friends, and um, some just offered to give money, and that was great. <laughs> and to ask him, but I look, there's a lot of producers and executive producers <laughs> in the film because so many people gave you know good big chunks of money, like I'm talking like twenty thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars, two thousand and five thousand um, individuals. So um, that that was primarily how I, I 
pretty much uh, raised the funds. And I, like I said, I had a job, and then I had a job that allowed me to take time off from work to work on it, but I didn't get paid. So um, I just thought a lot of my own savings, and it just became a, a passion project, right? Um, it's something you can't really put in dollars and cents. Well, I completely understand because I also worked on a film that took well over a decade to make and also involved um, mostly on paid labor. Um, so, yeah, I, I understand it's a yeah, challenge. I mean, yeah, the, the, um, you know, the high tapes um, uh, that I shot on, I mean, back in the 90s, I don't know, I'm not even including the money back in the early 90s when I bought tapes and, you know, travel to San Francisco and, you know, I would always stay with Jose, but um, that was, back then I was, you know, pretty much just uh, starting out my career. And so it was really difficult, you know, and one of the things that um, another challenge I had in making the film was that the high eight tapes that I shot on became ruined after 10 years because moisture got oh. into the tape. Oh, wow. Into about 20 hours of, of tapes, and they were unusable. It was just like you see that, you know, static of the lines, and you just couldn't, you couldn't, mm-hmm. you wouldn't even move. And I basically just put them all in a box, and I shoved it in the closet. I didn't have the heart to throw them away. But then there was a technique uh, that called, a uh, technological thing, called shake and bake, in which they heat the the tape up just slightly. They just heat it up a little bit, and then they shake it to make the ionization fall down, the whatever it is, the moisture. And they were able to dry out the tapes, and the tapes were then transferred digitally. And so basically everything you see of Jose talking in the interviews and on the buses, cemetery, and um, cabaret performances, they, they were all destroyed. They were all ruined, and they basically I got them repaired. But I almost yeah, threw away. I, <laughs> yeah, those challenges, I know we also experienced some challenges with the film I worked on because the technology changes and everything. There's actually a documentary about an early female filmmaker, Be Natural, and, and they go into that process of, of what you're describing with the tapes to, to kind of save them. So uh, I'm so glad that you had access to that and you were able to do that and you you uh, you know didn't throw those tapes away. And I wonder, so when you finally got it done, and again, it's it's such a compelling character. He's so, um, you know, he's someone that you're really rooting for in the film. Could you please talk about some of the reactions um, to the film from the from the community? Um, well, young people really are, uh, are drawn to it, um, gay people, because they don't have a lot of uh, heroes. You know, they don't have a lot of role models to look back on. Um, that history isn't there. Um, even look how long it took for, like, well, Sylvia Rivera. She was she was trans um, and um, a martial, or gender fluid also, and um, Marsha Johnson, P. Johnson. Uh, they were the first uh, drag uh, personas to march in the New York City um, gay pride parade. And they were kind of sidelined. They were kind of ousted. They didn't want... You know, except they were stereotypes. They didn't want them, you know, leading the parade. They didn't, but they the ones were, you know, at Stonewall, and they were the ones, you know, at um, fighting for their rights. 
but um, it just took a long time for them to get their recognition. I'm about dead, you know, they're long been dead, but um, it just took a long time to recognize who they were. And so when you talk about Jose Saria, who actually did implement things and run for political office, um, they're they're amazed. These these young people. I just showed it into a rural community near Palm Springs a community college, and there's only about 15 students, but they were just like, how come we never heard of this person? And that's pretty much what everyone says. And I said, well, you know, like it's explained explained in the documentary, uh, because he was Latino and because he was a drag queen, and they were not a part of the, you know, gay agenda, you know. Um, they were kind of pushed to the sidelines. You know, nobody pays attention to drag queens. They're just tongue-in-cheek. They don't take them seriously. And so... That's kind of what Jose, but he actually did so much. He did concrete things, tangible laws and ordinances were returned because of him pushing the envelope and confronting the authorities, the police. Um, He was even investigated by the FBI. They infiltrated one of his nonprofits uh, because they would be discussing how they can, you know, circumvent the law. And so the FBI thought they were, you know, Jose was a, you know, subversive, right, you know, communist sympathizers. So um, they found he he was very dangerous. They thought he was very, very dangerous, and he wore a dress, you know. But because Jose had such strong uh, confidence in who he was, he was able to push through those barriers so easily that, you know, he wasn't a fractured person um, like many, uh, unfortunately, gay men were at that time because of the repression, because of the laws, um, so yeah, um, that, that people yes. kids are always they're over they're always um, amazed by it, and that's that's pretty much the reaction. And they just love the history because um, there is that history prior to film. There's very little history. It's there's more being told now because accent, especially by Latino uh, filmmakers. I have to say there's there's a lot being told now by Latin filmmakers who are including their stories, including histories and uh, what we contributed to to the community. Yeah, I agree. There's certainly more um, coming out. Like uh, there's that documentary, My Name is Polly Murray, about another early trailblazer that's super interesting. Um, What advice would you give to aspiring filmmakers who may be listening about how to pursue a career in filmmaking? Um, well, they better be, <laughs> you better be passionate about the project you're working on because you'll be talking about it and writing about it and pushing it for a long time because no one is going to care more about your film than you. So you got to be diligent. you got to be unwavering. Um, you can't get disappointed. I know it's easy to get disappointed because you didn't get grants or you didn't, you know, um, technical problems with the film, you know, cameraman, you know, not showing up, whatever. It's going to be all kinds of problems, and you just have to kind of get past that and see the end result, the end goal. Um, but also be open to uh, new ways of, of doing things, you know, um, like with fundraising. You have to be open to different kinds of ways fundraising. you got to be open up to um, different ways of your uh, – you may have an idea what your film, especially with documentaries. You know, it may end up in a different way. Like my story, I didn't find out until, you know, almost done, you know, that it was about Jimmy, his lover, you know, and why Jose dresses up as the Widow Norton. So you're always exploring um, the story, 
you know, to tell it the best way. Uh, and the way that I tell it is like a narrative story. It's not one of those uh, um, documentaries where you're trying to convince people like, you know, inconvenient truth that, you know, climate, uh, uh, the climate is changing, right? You know, so it's, it's one of those films which is a, it's a personal, character-driven story. And that can be sometimes difficult when you're dealing with um, a person of his magnitude and his, the history behind it and all the people you interview it's hard to get personal how to make it more, you know, uh, story with uh, beats and character arcs and climaxes and those kinds of things. So you got to know what kind of movie you're making, that's for sure. Yeah, well, that's, that's, um, that's great advice. Where can um, people see your movie um, currently? Well, right now it's not in distribution. Um, we're just finishing up the, the mm-hmm. festival circuit. We are in talks with PBS and a few other distributors. Um, so right now, if you want to see it, uh, people can get a hold of me if they want to buy a copy or screen it, uh, like in, in the school or uh, community center, in which we've done. Uh, they can email me at joecastell at hotmail.com, J-O-E-C-A-S-P-E-L at hotmail.com. Um that's one way to see it. They're also going to show it in Palm Springs. We're celebrating Jose's 100th birthday in Palm Springs through December 12th because uh, he lived there for about 10 years. He'll be getting a star on the Walk of Fame down there. And there's even now a pop-up museum where people can visit. Uh, on the, it's on the main drag in Palm Springs. But it has, like, his letters, some of his letters, and it has costumes and some of his jewelry and photographs. Um, it's a nice little pop-up museum there at the library on the main drag of Palm Springs. And if people want more information about that, because um, they're having their, their gay pride this month um, down in Palm Springs. At, and they can, people can find out about it on Facebook.com uh, slash Jose Saria Foundation. Great. And do you also have, uh, are there any other social media handles you have or website for the film? Yeah. Um, I have a website. It's uh, NellieQueenFilm.com. And that's our website, NellieQueenFilm.com. And then we have um, uh, Facebook.com, Saria. Well, I know that um, getting these things out into the world is also a full-time job, but I always like to ask. Sometimes people are comfortable talking about it, sometimes not, but is there anything you're working on now that you would like to share? <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the, you know, what's next, right? What's, what's always next? No, yes, I actually, yes. I, I'm working on um, a, another big story. Uh, this is the Healthcare for the Homeless in Los Angeles. Um, huh. it, it's It's the point of view from uh, this clinic that I sit on the board of directors for. It's called Wesley Clinics. Um, and we're like the second largest um, nonprofit in the now. Um, we have 68,000 patients and 12,000 of them are homeless. And most of them are, are on Skid Row, Los Angeles. And um, so it's a big, it's a big thing. Uh, we have a huge operating budget now. And we're just taking care of people, trying to get them into housing, you know, uh, addressing their needs, such as substance abuse or mental health, um, if they have it, you know. So a lot of people come in uh, with physical problems, and we, we do recuperative care. 
Um, we have four or five sites for that. We actually put them in hospital beds. We put them in beds, and we take them so they don't keep ending up uh, on the streets and then back in the emergency rooms. So basically, it's, it's taking care of uh, the homeless, you know, um, there in Skid Row and, and other places around L.A. County. Well, I commend you for doing that work. The homeless population has certainly just exploded in, in recent years, and it's it's just a real tragedy. Is there anything else that I didn't um, ask you about that you would like to share today? I don't think so. I think we covered it all. <laughs> okay. Um, I think I well, can't think of great, anything. Yeah, well, it's a great film, and I hope um, – Wishing you the best with the distribution. I know that can be really tough. I mean, I hope more people get to see it um, because it is such a, um, you know, he, Jose is such a compelling character and person. And then also um, the history preserved is just very important. And, and so, uh, again, I hope more people get to see it. So thanks again for being here. And thank you, Claire, also. Yes. Thank you. Heather. Always a pleasure. And, uh, Right. Thank you, Jose, for all the good. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> We've been talking about Jose That's so okay. much. Uh, it doesn't yes. offend me. <laughs> Thank you, Chip. I'm Latin I'm <laughs> also. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Thanks, everyone, okay. for listening. Okay. So be well, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Heather. You too. Bye-bye. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone. <laughs>